0: Welcome to this episode of the New Life Christian Fellowship Podcast. Here is your host, Pastor Eric Stillman. Well, this morning I am continuing to go through the book of Acts. I've been going through this for a couple of months, and we are up to Acts chapter 8, as you can see this morning. It's been quite a ride so far for the disciples. I'll bring you back even to the prequel, the book of Luke, which was also written by uh, Luke, the man who wrote Acts Uh, If you remember, the disciples were following Jesus. They were convinced that he was the one who was going to overthrow the Roman oppressors and restore Israel to its former glory. But instead, Jesus was arrested, crucified, nailed to a cross, crushed the disciples. Didn't know what to make of it. But then after three days, he rose from the grave, conquering sin and death, showing them that he was not there just to overthrow Roman oppressors, but he was after a bigger enemy, the devil himself, sin, death, all of that. That by his life, death, and resurrection, he would overthrow the grave, overthrow the power of the enemy. Bring eternal life to all who would trust in him. And then he told them to wait in Jerusalem. To not go out and spread the good news yet, but to wait until they were clothed with power from on high. Until the Holy Spirit came inside of them. And so Jesus ascends to heaven. They're waiting in Jerusalem. And then the Holy Spirit, the third person of the Trinity, descends and enters each of them on the day of Pentecost. Remember in Acts 1.8, Jesus said, You will receive power when the Holy Spirit comes on you. And you will be my witnesses in Jerusalem and in all Judea and Samaria and to the ends of the earth. And so the Holy Spirit enters them and these disciples are transformed from cowards who ran away when Jesus was crucified to bold, fearless evangelists witnessing, testifying to Jesus, to his life, death, and resurrection. And the church grows rapidly. On that day of Pentecost, it says 3,000 are added to their number. And even though there's opposition coming against them, more and more come to faith. And they are growing this enormous church in Jerusalem of people devoted to Jesus and to loving each other. This multi-ethnic community has formed in Jerusalem under the leadership of these apostles, growing like crazy. But by the end of chapter 7, one thing has not yet happened. If you look closely at his charge to them. Great church is growing in Jerusalem, which is part of Judea. However, Samaria and the ends of the earth have not yet heard the gospel. And so God allows this persecution to come against them, as we looked at last week, where Stephen, one of the early church leaders, is executed. And a great persecution arises, as we're going to read in chapter 8, scattering them outside of Jerusalem. So let's read chapter 8, verses 1 through 40 this morning. It's going to focus on the ministry of a man named Philip, who is also one of the seven men who was raised up to be an early servant in the church along with Stephen. And so let's begin in Acts 8, verse 1. And Saul was there giving approval to Stephen's death. On that day, a great persecution broke out against the church at Jerusalem, and all except the apostles were scattered throughout Judea and Samaria. Godly men buried Stephen and mourned deeply for him. But Saul began to destroy the church. Going from house to house, he dragged off men and women and put them in prison. Those who had been scattered preached the word wherever they went. Philip went down to a city in Samaria and proclaimed the Christ there. When the crowds heard Philip and saw the miraculous signs he did, they all paid close attention to what he said. With shrieks, evil spirits came out of many, and many paralytics and cripples were healed. And so there was great joy in that city. Now, for some time, a man named Simon had practiced sorcery in that city and amazed all the people of Samaria. He boasted that he was someone great, and all the people, both high and low, gave him their attention and exclaimed, This man is the divine power, known as the great power. They followed him because he had amazed them for a long time with his magic. But when they believed Philip, as he preached the good news of the kingdom of God and the name of Jesus Christ, they were baptized, both men and women. And Simon himself believed and was baptized. And he followed Philip everywhere, astonished by the great signs and miracles he saw. When the apostles in Jerusalem heard that Samaria had accepted the word of God, they sent Peter and John to them. When they arrived, they prayed for them that they might receive the Holy Spirit, because the Holy Spirit had not yet come upon any of them. They had simply been baptized into the name of the Lord Jesus. Then Peter and John placed their hands on them, and they received the Holy Spirit. When Simon saw that the Spirit was given at the laying on of the apostles' hands, he offered them money And he said, give me also this ability so that everyone on whom I lay my hands may receive the Holy Spirit. Peter answered, may your money perish with you because you thought you could buy the gift of God with money. You have no part or share in this ministry because your heart is not right before God. Repent of this wickedness and pray to the Lord. Perhaps he will forgive you for having such a thought in your heart. For I see that you are full of bitterness and captive to sin. Then Simon answered, pray to the Lord for me so that nothing you have said may happen to me. When they had testified and proclaimed the word of the Lord, Peter and John returned to Jerusalem, preaching the gospel in many Samaritan villages. Now an angel of the Lord said to Philip, go south to the road, the desert road that goes down from Jerusalem to Gaza. So he started out, and on his way he met an Ethiopian eunuch, an important official, in charge of all the treasury of Candace, queen of the Ethiopians. This man had gone to Jerusalem to worship, and on his way back was sitting in his chariot, reading the book of Isaiah the prophet, The spirit told Philip, "'Go to that chariot and stay near it.' Then Philip ran up to the chariot and heard the man reading Isaiah the prophet. "'Do you understand what you're reading?' Philip asked. "'How can I?' he said, "'unless someone explains it to me.' So he invited Philip to come up and sit with him. The eunuch was reading this passage of Scripture. "'He was led like a lamb to the slaughter, "'and as a lamb before the shearer is silent, "'so he did not open his mouth. "'In his humiliation he was deprived of justice.' Who can speak of his descendants? For his life was taken from the earth. The eunuch asked Philip, tell me please, who is this prophet talking about himself or someone else? And then Philip began with that very passage of scripture and told him the good news about Jesus. As they traveled along the road, they came to some water and the eunuch said, look, here is water. Why shouldn't I be baptized? And he gave orders to stop the chariot. Then both Philip and the eunuch went down into the water and Philip baptized him. When they came up out of the water, the spirit of the Lord suddenly took Philip away, and the eunuch did not see him again, but went on his way rejoicing. Philip, however, appeared at Azotus and traveled about, preaching the gospel in all the towns until he reached Caesarea. This is God's word. Let me uh, pray before we continue. Lord, open our hearts and open our ears to hear from you and to receive this word. Speak to us, Lord, through your word. Help us to know what this means for us today. We pray in Jesus' name. Amen. So there's a great shift that happens in this chapter. As I said before, there's this big church in Jerusalem under the leadership of the apostles. But now the church is scattered, and it says they preach the gospel wherever they go. That all the members have now become ministers. Wherever they go, they've got to share the good news of Jesus. And so instead of being this centralized church now, Every member has taken on the responsibility of being a minister. This is true for us today, that ministry is not the job of professionals, that we are all ministers. We're all evangelists. We're all called to be witnesses to Jesus, to testify to the gospel of who Jesus is and what he's done. And so I want to focus this morning on what this passage teaches us about being witnesses. I mean, there's a lot I could say about Simon the sorcerer, about the Ethiopian eunuch, but I want to focus more on Philip, and on our role as witnesses. And so the first of the three things that I want to share with you this morning about what it means to be a witness is that we are called to proclaim good news, not good advice. We're proclaiming good news, not good advice. Again, looking back at verses 4, 5, and 12, those who have been scattered preached the word wherever they went, which is the word euangelion, where we get the word gospel, good news. They preached the word wherever they went. Philip went down to a city in Samaria and proclaimed the Christ there. That's the Greek word keruso, which means to herald. And then when they believed Philip as he preached the good news of the kingdom of God and the name of Jesus Christ, they were baptized, both men and women. Okay? So the importance of these words is, again, to be a witness means to proclaim good news. News is about something that has happened. Right? The news reports to you what has happened. And a herald... If you don't know what a herald is, the king sends the herald out with a message, and the herald proclaims the king's message. The herald does not change the message at all, doesn't put his spin on it or her spin on it. The herald is just called to proclaim the king's message. And that's what he says they did. They went out and proclaimed the king's message. They preached the good news, not good advice. It's good news. The gospel is good news about something that has happened, not good advice about something you should do, if that makes sense. Where would you go in the Bible if you were asked, you know, where does it sum up what the gospel is? What passage would you go to? Anyone know? 1 Corinthians 15. 1 Corinthians 15, verses 1 through 8. Paul says this, Now, brothers, I want to remind you of the gospel I preached to you. So now he's saying, okay, this is the gospel. This is the good news that I preached, which you have received and on which you have taken your stand. By this gospel you are saved. If you hold firmly to the word I preach to you, otherwise you have believed in vain. For what I received, I also pass on. Notice there, kind of the words of, it's, it's a thought of a herald, like, I received this and I'm passing it on. For what I received, I pass on to you as of first importance, that Christ died for our sins, according to the scriptures. That he was buried, that he was raised on the third day, according to the scriptures, and then he appeared to Peter and then to the twelve. And after that, he appeared to more than 500 of the brothers at the same time, most of whom are still living, though some have fallen asleep, which means they died. Then he appeared to James, then to all the apostles, and last of all, he appeared to me also, as to one abnormally born. What's the gospel? Christ died for our sins. According to the scriptures, he was buried. He was raised on the third day. So they are to go out and proclaim the good news. Again, news is about something that has happened. Not good advice about what you need to do in order to reach God, in order to have a good life, anything like that. Preach the good news. Jesus Christ died for your sins. Your sins are what has separated you from God. That you've fallen short of God's holy standard. That we're all rebels against the holy God. and We're all deserving of eternal separation from God. But Christ died for our sins. He took the punishment we deserved on the cross to offer us forgiveness of sins, eternal life, a way to be right with the Father. He died, was buried, and rose again on the third day, conquering sin and death. That's the good news. That is the gospel. It's not good advice about what you need to do, it's good news. There's a lot of good advice out there, isn't there, about how to live a good life, a spiritual life, even. Follow the Eightfold Path, the Five Pillars, the Ten Commandments, all kinds of other ways out there. Good advice on how to reach God. But Christianity is not good advice. It's not advice on what you need to do. It's good news about what Jesus Christ has done for you. And you have a choice to either believe the good news or reject the good news. And he says that is what your eternal destiny depends upon, whether or not you receive and believe that good news. Do you believe the good news? Do you believe the gospel that Jesus Christ died for your sins, that all believe in him will not perish, will not have eternal separation from God for all eternity, but will have eternal life? It's good news. You can't earn it. You can't buy it. You just have to receive and believe it. In fact, look at what happens with Simon the sorcerer. Do you remember what happened? That he sees Peter and the apostles laying on their hands, people receiving the Holy Spirit. And what does he say? Hey, here's some money, you know, give me that power that you got there. And Peter responds by saying this: He says, May your money perish with you, because you thought you could buy the gift of God with money. It's a gift freely given. Salvation, the Holy Spirit, eternal life. It is a gift offered to you, free of charge. You cannot buy it. You cannot earn it. Simon, you can't buy the gift of God. You can't buy the Holy Spirit. It's a free gift. For all of you who have thought that Christianity or religion is about what do I need to do in order to reach God? What steps do I need to do in order to get there? It's not advice. It's not good advice. It's good news. Jesus Christ has already lived the perfect life you couldn't live. And he died a sacrificial death in your place on the cross. What do you need to do? You need to believe in him and what he did for you. You turn from sin, from self-centered way of living to him as Savior and Lord. You are a witness to Jesus Christ. They were all called to be witnesses and we're all called to be witnesses to Jesus Christ, to the gospel, to the good news. And if you read in Acts 8 there, you notice it takes various forms. In Siberia, it was much more of kind of this, like, preaching to the crowds. And then when he went to the Ethiopian eunuch, it was a one-on-one Bible study. I mean, it takes many forms of evangelism, but we're called to be witnesses. It's the job of every single believer to invite people into a relationship with Jesus Christ. The call to be a witness is for each of us. We're proclaiming good news, not good advice, It's good news about what Jesus has done. Calling people to believe in that. Second is this. The second thing that we're called to be as witnesses is to invite people into an inclusive community without division. Now that word inclusive may strike you as an interesting choice. It's got a lot of meanings these days. And the church often does not get a reputation as an inclusive place. So let me explain what I mean when I say this. Remember, Jesus says, you are to be my witnesses in Jerusalem, Judea, Samaria, to the ends of the earth. On the day of Pentecost, the Holy Spirit falls. They start speaking in other languages, and people who are gathered from all different countries and nations hear the word of God proclaimed, and this multi-ethnic community is formed. This community that crosses all barriers, people are welcomed into. In chapter 8, Philip goes to Samaria. Samaria, in case you didn't know, was pretty much the enemy of Israel. They looked down on each other. Israel looked at them as a mixed breed. They were not pure Israelites. Their religion was not pure. They looked down on them. The Samaritans looked down on Israelites. This is why when Jesus wanted to give an example of what it means to love your enemy, what did he use? A good Samaritan, right? As an example of love means loving even your enemies. But now he says the gospel is to go forth to even the Samaritans. Invite them in to the family of God. And then beyond that, to this Ethiopian eunuch, to the ends of the earth. That was as far as they knew the world went in those days. This African, sexually altered man, this Ethiopian eunuch, he, invite him in to the family of God, to the church. This gospel is meant to cross all barriers to bring everyone into one inclusive community without division, Again, remember Jesus' great commission in Matthew chapter 28. Before the book ends, he, he tells his disciples after he rose from the dead this. Jesus came to them and said, All authority in heaven and on earth has, given, has been given to me. Therefore, go and make disciples of all nations, baptizing them in the name of the Father and of the Son and of the Holy Spirit, teaching them to obey everything I have commanded you. And surely I am with you always to the very end of the age. All nations. All nations. Everyone in the whole world preach the gospel, share the good news, bring everyone into this inclusive community that is meant to cut across all barriers, all things that divide humans, bring them into one inclusive community. And again, in Acts 8 you you'll receive power when the Holy Spirit comes on you. You will be my witnesses, Jerusalem, Judea, Samaria, to the ends of the earth. Is Jesus just saying this to increase market share? You know, like he just wants to have the biggest religion on the globe. No, he's doing this because God so loved the world that had sinned and fallen short of his glory, that had rebelled against him. He loves the world so much that he sent his son to make a way for us to come back to him. It's a rescue mission. And now he's sending us out as a rescue mission. Bring people back to God. Let them know that eternal life and forgiveness of sins is found in Jesus Invite them into not only a relationship with God, but into this inclusive community that is meant to cut across everything that divides humanity. The gospel is meant to be radically inclusive. A free gift offered to every single human being in every single culture. I mean, the disciples are building this amazing church in Jerusalem and God's like, that's not what I called you to. That's part of it, but that's not it. We need everyone. I want everyone back in my family. Jerusalem, Judea, Samaria to the ends of the earth. In Acts chapter 4, verse 14 to 17, something interesting happens there along the way. When the apostles in Jerusalem heard that Samaria had accepted the word of God, they sent Peter and John to them, right? Let's send the head apostles here to check out what's going on. When they arrived, they prayed for them that they might receive the Holy Spirit. Because the Holy Spirit had not yet come upon any of them, they had simply been baptized in the name of the Lord Jesus. Then Peter and John placed their hands on them, and they received the Holy Spirit. Some of you, depending on your background, may be familiar with this passage. This is one that, um, on the more charismatic end, some people point to and say that there's a secondary baptism. That there's kind of you come to faith in Jesus, but then there's the baptism of the Holy Spirit. That's a secondary thing. And they would point to a passage like this and say there's a secondary baptism whereas the Holy Spirit comes and you begin to speak in tongues and you receive this greater anointing and power for ministry. I don't think that's what's going on here. This is not, you don't see in the whole New Testament where people keep, you know, where Paul or anyone keeps saying you need to look for the baptism of the Holy Spirit and pursue that. What seems to be happening there, here, is that the gospel has gone to the Samaritans and God sends Peter and John there as kind of authenticators to see, yes, The gospel has come to the Samaritans. Instead of having these two warring tribes in Christianity, instead, he authenticates it for Peter and John. This is something I am doing, as if if God says to them, I am doing this. I am giving them my Holy Spirit. You're not to look down on them anymore as half-breeds, as impure. These are now your brothers and sisters in Christ. That it was very important for God that Peter and John, the leaders of the church, saw this happen with their own eyes. God give them the Holy Spirit so that there would not be division in the church. And then the Spirit sends Philip to this Ethiopian eunuch to again say this gospel is supposed to cut across every barrier that divides humanity so that you would form one radically inclusive community where you are all brothers and sisters. You know, one of the most amazing things about Christianity is just how cross-cultural it is. You may not be aware of it, but you know, most religions, if you look around the world, most religions are still where they were formed. The majority of people who belong to different religions in the world still pretty much live where that religion began. And again, people who don't believe would say, well, that's because religion's an outgrowth of a culture. You know? So for example. 96% of Muslims still live in the Middle East. 88% of Buddhists still live in East Asia. 98% of Hindus still live in India or South Asia. But the center of Christianity has moved. This is a graph, in case you can't see. I don't usually use graphs on a Sunday. But this is, a, this is the percentage of the world's Christians in each continent. And it goes from 1900 to the future, 2100. We're kind of right in the middle right now. But it's someone's projection as to what's going on around the world Remember the beginning of in the beginning of the church, Christianity was centered in the Middle East, and then it migrated over time to Europe and then to North America. And now, as you can see, or maybe you can't see, but I'll tell you, it's migrated more now to the global south, that there's more Christians in Africa and Latin America, and it's growing like crazy in Asia, in in Korea, in China, as it as the, the percentage in Europe and North America declines. What does that mean? probably means a lot of things, but one thing it means is just how cross-cultural Christianity is. It's not a white man's religion. It's not a European religion. It's not a North American religion. It's not even a Middle Eastern religion. It is the religion of the world. It is God's truth, cross-cultural truth. 631 million, right now, this is the estimates as of 2020, 631 million Christians live in Africa, 601 in Latin America, 571 in Europe, 388 in Asia, 277 in North America, 29 million in Oceania. Again, it's not a white man's religion. This is God's religion, meant to be a cross-cultural religion family of God that cuts across every barrier in the world. As Paul said, Galatians three twenty eight to 29, there is neither Jew nor Greek, slave nor free, male nor female, for you are all one in Christ Jesus. If you belong to Christ, then you are Abraham's seed and heirs according to the promise. What is he saying? All the things that divide people in this world come down in the, in, in the church. We don't divide on the basis of Gender, on the basis of socioeconomic status, on the basis of ethnicity, all are one in Christ. Colossians 3.11, here there is no Greek or Jew, circumcised or uncircumcised, barbarian, Scythian, slave or free, but Christ is all and is in all. This is God's plan for how we are going to unite the world, how we bring harmony, how we overcome war, how we overcome all the division of the world. It's the gospel of Jesus Christ. All the barriers are meant to come down in the family of God. This is vital in every generation, but certainly in this generation, right? I mean, if you have not noticed, our world seems to be becoming more increasingly polarized every day, right? People kind of going to their extremes. Barriers and division everywhere. If you haven't noticed, American culture tends to be taking this increasingly disastrous approach to establishing community. Community. You know, to, to sum it up, it kind of goes by the name critical theory often, or critical race theory. To see everything through the lens of power and oppression and to divide people into categories based on their race, gender, sexuality, ability, religion, class. Let's divide people. See one group as the privileged oppressor group and one group as the targeted oppressed group. And then Instead of emphasizing our common humanity, let's emphasize what divides us. And we will elevate those who've been historically targeted or oppressed, and we'll try to silence or sideline those who've been historically privileged. Has anyone noticed this? This is kind of the ad- approach that many in our world are taking in the name of unity and progress and healing and all of that. And it's having the opposite effect, as you might imagine. Surprise, surprise, when you divide people, you don't bring unity. It's a dangerous thing that all these laws and policies that are trying to be changed to encourage this equity, this equality of outcome, as much as possible. Uh, Milton Friedman, this economist, he wrote this in response to the, the way he sees our society going. A society that puts equality in the sense of equality of outcome ahead of freedom will end up with neither equality nor freedom. The use of force to achieve equality will destroy freedom And the force introduced for good purposes will end up in the hands of people who use it to promote their own interests. Again, you look back at the last century, at the communist movements, the socialist movements, in the name of equality, what happened? Mass murder, genocide, oppression. The world's idea of how we achieve unity and and love and peace is not going to work. God's answer is the gospel of Jesus Christ to invite everyone into this radically inclusive family that cuts across every barrier and division. And if you say, well, wait a minute, aren't you saying, you know, us versus them, Christians versus other religions? But if the gospel is that we are saved by grace, not by our good works, not by anything we've ever done, then it's creating a radically inclusive community that doesn't look down on anyone else because we know it's by grace we're saved. How can we look down on anyone who doesn't believe what we believe or thinks differently than us? We didn't come to where we are by our own brains, our own good works. It's a gift of God's grace. That's God's plan. God's plan is to create this radically inclusive community in which every barrier and division of humanity falls down. You're a Christian first and an Ethiopian second. You're a Christian first and a man second. You're a Christian first and a middle class person second. You're a Christian first and then whatever category... There is out in the world that's secondary to that we are Christians, we are a family of God. So, what does it mean to be a witness? It means, first of all, to proclaim good news, not good advice, that Jesus Christ died for your sins. Secondly, it means to invite people into an inclusive community without division. And wherever we as a church are failing at that, putting up walls, creating division, we need to repent of that and invite everybody into the church. Now, let me give an important distinction to that word inclusive here in the third point. We invite people to Jesus as both Savior and Lord. It's an important distinction on how the world uses the word inclusive and how we use the word inclusive. Inclusive, as far as the church means, we invite everybody into the church to Jesus as Savior and Lord. Inclusive out in the world often means as you are, stay as you are, you know, everyone should be welcome, whatever they think, believe, however they act. In the church, it means you are all invited into a relationship with Jesus as Savior and Lord. Savior, the one who died on the cross for your sins to save you from death, and Lord, the one who is King, the eternal King, to whom every knee will bow. Again, go back to Jesus' Great Commission. All authority in heaven and on earth has been given to me. Therefore, go and make disciples of all nations, baptizing them in the name of the Father and of the Son and of the Holy Spirit. Baptism is inviting people into the community and teaching them to obey everything I have commanded you. Surely, I am with you always to the very end of the age. What's inclusivity look like as far as Jesus is concerned? Everybody in the whole world, no matter what their background, what they believe, is welcome into the family of God, is welcome into my community. And then teach them to obey everything I have commanded you. Make disciples. Every single aspect of your life comes down in submission to the king. There's no area of your life that you hold on to and say, this area is mine. You can't touch it, God. The gospel is radically inclusive, but it's also transformative. It's also meant to transform you into the image of Christ. I came to faith as an 18-year-old, and I remember the first Christian book pamphlet I ever read was a little one called, it was called My Heart, Christ's Home. I don't know if anyone ever heard of that or read that. It was on the InterVarsity Christian Fellowship table. I picked that up. It was a small little book. And it just used the analogy of a home and what it means to follow Jesus as Lord, that we invite him into the front door, you know, And we let him stay in the foyer. He's in our home. He's in our lives. You know, but eventually Jesus is like, what about the living room there? You know, and we let him into the living room where we have our relationships with people. And he he comes to be Lord over our relationships in our life. And what about the, uh, you know, bedroom? And he becomes the Lord over our sexuality, over our marriage, or over our singleness. What does it mean then to allow him to be Lord over that? What about the closets? What about the basement? What about those different areas of your life and allowing him to be Lord? That's kind of what the journey is, right? You come to him. It's radically inclusive. No matter who you are, where you come from, everyone, he died for everyone. You can come to faith in him. And then we come to him not just as Savior, but as Lord. We invite people into community where they're going to learn what it means to know God, what it means to follow Jesus, the King of kings, the one who loves you more than Anyone else could, who knows you, who created you, who knows what's best for you. The gospel is radically inclusive. The call to be a witness is to proclaim good news, not give good advice, to invite people into an inclusive community without division, and to invite people to Jesus as both Savior and Lord. The call to be a witness was given to Philip, to the early apostles, and it's given to you today. Go and make disciples of all nations. Be my witnesses. Testify to what I have done. What I did 2,000 years ago, what I've done in your life today. I want to end just with a couple prayers. This prayer is for anyone in here who does not know Jesus as Savior and Lord. If you look at your life and you're like, I don't know Jesus. I don't know God in that way. I do not have a relationship with God. It's still just kind of a head thing or I think God's a being out there, but you don't have that relationship with him. His desire is to know you and to fill you with his Holy Spirit. And so you can pray with me this prayer, if that's you this morning. Jesus, I believe that you are Savior and Lord. I believe that you died for my sins. And that when I turn from my sinful, self-centered way of life to faith in you, I am saved from sin and death. I come to you this morning, not only as Savior, but as Lord submitting every area of my life to your good and loving leadership. Amen. And for those of us who do know Jesus, can we this morning recommit ourselves to his mission? Let Me again, put up Matthew twenty-eight eighteen 18 to 20. These words were for the disciples and these are words for you as well. All authority in heaven and earth has been given to me, therefore go and make disciples of all nations, baptizing them in the name of the Father and of the Son and of the Holy Spirit, and teaching them to obey everything I have commanded you, and surely I am with you always to the very end of the age. Can we spend a little time in prayer together as a church? And if you want to pray out loud, you're welcome to. If you'd rather pray quietly, you're welcome to as well. But let's pray along the lines of this passage. Pray that God would give you courage to be a witness to him. Pray for those in your life who don't know him, that they would come to faith. Pray that God would send more workers out under the harvest field to all the nations of this world to preach the gospel. Thank you for listening to the New Life Christian Fellowship Podcast. We are located at 1155 Silas Dean Highway in Wethersfield, Connecticut and can be found online at newlife-ct.org. No redistribution or use of any kind of this recording is allowed without express written consent of New Life Christian Fellowship.